You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 27, Emotional Expression. Today we've got Gerald Kupchik from the University of Toronto. We're going to talk a little bit about emotions. So, you know, people have a sort of a folk idea of what emotions are. Uh, what do you think people, what's something that people misunderstand about emotions? Well, what they don't misunderstand about emotions is when they're being screamed at. <laughs> so, in other words, you have a situation in which someone is behaving or screaming at you unexpectedly, and it orients you, and of course what's going to happen is you're going to feel fear or uncertainty, you don't know how to handle it. So a, a big theme now in psychology having to do with emotion is the whole idea of emotion regulation. So we've got like two sides to the problem. On the one hand, people can't be emotional, they're holding it in. Those are the people who are having you know, psychosomatic disorders. On the other hand, people can be acting out and showing too much emotion. So the question is, how do we regulate ourselves and how do we learn to deal with other people when they're sort of imbalanced and coming at us with too much emotion? Yeah, I think we can all think of people who bottle it up too much and people who let it out too much. Is this, do you know anything about uh, how this might differ with different cultures? Well, you can have a culture that's, should we say, a culture of uh, reservation. Now, the culture of reservation can happen in a community. So, for example, our, our stereotyped notion of a British culture is one in which there's a reserve. Another word for reserve is you don't show emotion. It's interesting when I talk to people in the United States who were in the Vietnam War in the 1970s, there was no notion of, P of PTSD. They would talk about battle fatigue. First World War, they would talk about shell shock, and before that, they would talk about the person as being a coward. So you can have a culture in which the reserve, the absence of the display of emotion, either to others or to yourself is fundamental. That can be in a culture. On the other hand, you can have someone coming from a South American culture. One of my students wrote a paper about a cousin who came up from Brazil and was hugging uh, her colleagues at work, and they assumed that she was coming on to them. So there's a whole notion of emotional distance between people, physical distance between people, and that can happen at a cultural level. But the same thing can happen in the family. You can have a family where people are more reserved or family where people are more expressive. Being an expressive guy myself, I thought the expressive people were the winners until I collected some data on it. And you discover that the person who comes from the reserved family, where mom and dad don't show a lot of emotion, but you want to borrow the car, and dad's coming through the door at the end of a day of work, or mom's coming through the door, you're going to be super skilled at seeing the very smallest amount of positive emotion ask them about the car, or negative emotion, don't even think about it. So the person who comes from the reserved family learns to discern the emotions of the parents. So there's cultural differences between societies and differences within the family. And the question is, how do we deal with ourselves who are either expressive or reserved people? The psychologist Carl Jung said that in inside of every extrovert is an introvert trying to get out. And I sort of think of myself that way because I go to the university, I'm hanging out with my colleagues, I'm talking to my students, I'm very social and expressive in my lecture, and then I get into my car and I'm completely burned out. I want no human contact. On the other hand, inside of every introvert is a, 
an extrovert trying to get out because this person is dealing with life in a very systematic, reserved, restrained way. But deep inside, there's almost a wish to be the opposite. So we can have cultural differences, we can have differences within the family, and we can have differences within the individual. It sounds like uh, the people who are from a reserved family <clears throat> or perhaps a reserved culture uh, have to develop a more fine-tuned detector of emotion. Is that uh, sort of the explanation you were well, it's a, very interesting it's a very interesting question. What is it that we're detecting? So if I were to talk about emotion, there are two traditions in the area of emotion. Now, one tradition talks about emotion as natural kinds, in quotes. They see these emotions as uh, tied to our mammalian past. And you talk about pairs of emotions. For example, pairs of emotions related to attachment, happy and sad complementary pairs, or a pair of emotion related to assertion, fear and anger, or another pair related to absorption, interest or disgust. So these are kind of opposites, but it's seen as built into our mammalian past and ties us to the very nature of survival. These are real emotions that we experience in different nuances. You can be sad in different ways, you can be frightened in different ways or angry in different ways, but yet it seem as fundamental and tied to the limbic system. The German tradition places and also a philosophical emphasis on that going back to the 1800s, because for these guys, people like Goethe and Schiller, the idea is that People have conflicts inside of them. Emotion is a natural part of finding out who we are. So they're comfortable with this kind of, shall we say, uh, chaos of emotion. On the other hand, you have a tradition coming out of this more British reserved approach of the Enlightenment, and there the concern is for feelings. Feelings related to pleasure, feelings related to arousal. So for example, I can feel more or less pleasure as a consequence to uh, succeeding or failing at something, and I can have more or less arousal or energy activation that helps me focus. So the feeling level is not really about meaning. It's tied to body and sensation. The meaning level has more to do with the self and emotions the way we think about them in everyday life. I think a lot of people think of emotions as a primarily a psychological entity. Uh, you know, some sort of a pattern in the brain. But uh, emotions have a lot of physiological uh, things going on at the same time, right? Well, I would say, and I've been thinking about this a lot, there are two ways of, of dealing with this. If we say, first of all, we talk about the difference between the category approach and the dimensional approach. The category approach has to do with these primary emotions or primary affects I talked about, happiness, sadness, fear, anger, interest, and disgust. And the dimensional approach has to do with this pleasure or lack of pleasure, pleasant, unpleasant, and higher low arousal. One might say that we feel higher low arousal and we feel higher low uh, pleasure sooner at a more superficial level than we think about emotions like happiness and sadness. So it really has to do with depth. An important factor here, I would say, is the extent to which we take into account the situation. So I can feel more pleasant or less pleasant, more sensual, less sensual. I can feel more excited, less excited. But if I want to talk about happy and sad, it tells me about the situation. I'm feeling pleasure in this situation. One might say that emotions are feelings filled with meaning related to the self in a particular situation. So we go from the, the surface of bodily states of pleasure 
or excitement to the deeper levels of understanding emotion that are tied to themes like, as I said, attachment, assertion, and absorption in socially meaningful situations. The more meaningful, in a certain sense, the greater the role played by the prefrontal cortex, the higher order areas of the brain that have to do with interpreting the meaning of situations. So the body is always implicated. But the question is, it, is it the old brain, the limbic system that we share with animals, or is it the new brain, the area of the prefrontal cortex that plays such an important role in interpreting situations and deciding how to act in them? I think a lot of people naturally think about emotions as being more or less directly caused by things that are going on. Um, and I think a lot of psychologists used to think that, but um, the modern view is is really more in line with what you're saying, right? That that any nothing is meaningful in and of itself, in some sort of objective way. It's a matter of how we appraise it that sort of generates how we feel about it. My father used to say, "It's time to put down the shovel," or "Why is this person carrying such a heavy suitcase?" The point being that if we look at ourselves as people who've evolved and changed over life with different kinds of challenges, we have emotional situations from childhood, situations of abuse or situations of being cared for that become fundamental foundations to how we are emotionally as adults. And people can carry unresolved emotions from childhood into adulthood. They can come out in our sleep. They can come out in, in the psychosomatic symptoms. The point being that emotions are not just experiences that we have in situations. Emotions are the reawakening, like the tip of the iceberg. When you are angry, it's as if we are awakening all the angry experiences that you've ever had in your life. So someone who grew up in, a, in an environment where they were really uh, shut down and they built up a lot of resentment inside, they might explode. The explosion doesn't come out of nowhere. The explosion comes out of the fact that they had a large suitcase of resentment that they carried with them and did not have an opportunity to express it. And finally, they have the opportunity, it explodes. So a good way to think about ourselves as emotional people is to understand that we carry emotions within ourselves from childhood, and to the extent that they're unresolved, they are always in a position to erupt almost like a volcano. So how, how did scientists find evidence that um, things that happened in your childhood have ramifications for your emotional expression as an adult? That's an interesting question because a person can go, again, I'm not a therapist, that a person can go to someone in a therapeutic context and say to them, look, I don't know why I have this feeling, but I, I, can't, I can't love or I don't trust. These are the themes underlying emotional relationships. And I think what would happen in a therapeutic context is what you're going back and you're trying to relive your personal history. And this is one of the problems that people face. They can shut their door on their personal histories. They can turn their back on their personal histories. And one of the things that I've observed teaching the psychology of emotion for more than a decade is that I encourage students to feel the freedom of safety in the classroom or safety in the therapeutic context that the only way they're going to feel free to love or feel free to be loved is if they open the door and are honest about 
their emotional histories. And this is a very difficult thing, PTSD in a military context or PTSD from psychological or physical abuse as children is something that can cause very strong psychological states because the door is closed. In, a, in one way, they can show it as physical, physical and psychosomatic symptoms, but another way it can show as very, very traumatic and inappropriate social behavior that seems to come out of nowhere. I had an experience a few weeks ago of talking to a guy from California now in his 70s about what it was like to come back from being on a destroyer battleship in the Vietnam War. And of course, he came back and people saw the guys who were on these battleships as responsible for the war. And they were just guys who had to go into the army or navy. They had no choice. But he said something amazing to me. Here they are in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury in 1970, 1972. There was no notion of PTSD, but some of the guys had begun to take psychology courses and they realized that they had to therapize themselves. So they began to meet in groups and talk about their war experiences as a way of opening the door and relieving some of these pent up frustrations. And he said it was crucial for therapy. In other words, these guys who came back from the Vietnam War learned to therapize themselves, learned to open the door to their fears, because once their fears and anxieties and guilts were on the table, they were in the position to begin to get past them through mutual support. Yeah, I've read a lot of studies about how um, doing really deliberate thought about your emotions can help attenuate them, both for good and for bad, right? So if you explain, I've seen studies, you explain why you like the taste of a cupcake, your emotional feeling about the cupcake is lessened, but also this happens for negative things. Have you uh, heard of this kind of research? What do you think of it? Well, I'm not familiar with this particular work, but it's a, you use the word deliberate. And the word deliberate is an important word here. Just simply deciding to, uh, I'm going to look at my emotions now, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do it. It's almost like the first step you have to take. The first step one would take is to understand the legitimacy of one's emotions, that it's okay to have emotions because we said at the outset of our conversation, people can, different cultures, different families, someone can say, you're not feeling well, go to your room, we don't want to hear about it. So if they don't want to hear about it, then you probably say to yourself, well, I shouldn't be hearing about it. So there are many layers in the decision to become emotional and to accept the legitimacy and the reality of emotion of even permitting oneself to admit being emotional. So there's the opening the door. And then on the other side about emotion, there's the issue of self-regulation. When we talk too much, when we cut people off, we have to be aware that we can be excited in situations that it's important not just to look back at our personal histories, but to monitor ourselves moment to moment and not only look at our own emotions, but accept in a legitimizing way the emotions that other people have and let them feel safe to express them. One of the things that I've learned after being a professor for now 45 years is the importance of my my uh, laboratory meetings with my students, undergraduates and graduates, they want to join us, that it's a zone of safety. And therefore, we all need to find zones of safety that permit us to take the brave step 
of taking a look at emotions that we may have turned our backs on. So a person can be in a relationship that's not working, but they can't admit it to themselves. So in a certain sense, it requires a changing of one's orientation, a changing of one's attitude, which says, you know what? It's okay to admit how you feel. And only then can you begin to think about, well, where does it come from? And finally, what should I do about ameliorating, improving the situation that I'm in? So when people express an emotion, sometimes you disapprove in some sense of what the emotion is, right? So somebody might express jealousy or anger where it's misapplied and the temptation might be to try to step on it and chide them or criticize them. And uh, are you saying that like the first step has got to be some sort of a um, open acceptance before change can start? You know, I was talking with a friend this morning who's he's a professional mediator. And for him, there are two parts. One, learning to accept the legitimacy of your own emotions. And two, learning to accept the legitimacy of another person's emotion. But just because the other person has the emotion, it doesn't mean it's true or right. So I've seen situations where someone can engage, be jealous, or they can be angry at you, at me, at someone else, and they can be, you know, convinced that they're right, etc. But in your heart of hearts, you know, wait a second, there's something wrong here. There's bias in how the person's interpreting. The person is in error. Now, at a certain level, there's no point in getting involved in a big argument about it because the person will just become more entrenched in their speech. I suggest in situations like this that we acknowledge the legitimacy of their having these feelings. And if it calms the situation down, then you can go to the next step of saying, well, what caused your feelings? Why are you angry at me? And then you have to yourself be prepared for the potential legitimacy of the criticism. But if the criticism is not legitimate, then you have to have the bravery to step away from the conversation and perhaps even step away from the situation. In our work in the last couple of years on the self, one of the things that we are discovering is that there are two aspects that are sort of qualitatively different. The strong sense of self is one where you know your moral uh, compass, you have faith in the strength of your decisions, you have faith in your resilience. On the other hand, there can be an uncertain sense of self where you're thinking about yourself all the time and you're not certain if you're making the right decision. These are not strong self versus weak self. They're two completely different kinds of dynamics. So if the strong sense of self, you know your moral compass, and you're interacting with people in a particular situation, you can more wisely know, should I be empathic? Should I be supportive? And at what point do I step away? But if you have an uncertain sense of self, you can be intimidated by another person who speaks in a strong way, another person who speaks in a critical way. I suggest the following, that, and I underscore this to my students in a productive way. We should not think of ourselves as objects burdened by emotions, which are the suitcase we carry around. Rather, we see ourselves as people who are becoming who come from a particular, a particular history where there can be emotion in the past, but we're not trapped in it. We are in a position to change by letting go of our emotions, by being sympathetic to others. Taking this dynamic approach to the self 
cutting oneself some slack, understanding that it's legitimate to feel anger or fear. It's okay to be there and therefore understanding it in the other people. Taking that kind of dynamic approach takes the burden off you and the burden off your relationship with others. Do you have uh, any thoughts about the relationship between uh, morality and emotions? You know, we did a study last year and it's continuing this year looking at uh, moral decisions that people face in China and in Canada. And so the ones in China were wrote in Chinese and my student translated. And the one in Canada where at Scarborough U of T where I teach, we have kids from so many different cultures, but they're writing in English. And what we discovered is that the most important variable, the most important factor determining how you relate to morally challenging situations has to do with your strong or weak sense of self. The person with the stronger sense of self who thought out their life, who are honest about their emotions, feel in a better position to make moral decisions that are related to other people. And the second thing they do is they figure, okay, in this situation, if I act like this, what are the cost benefits for other people? Then they're asking what the cost benefit for themselves. My point being that the strong sense of self, both in China and in Canada, where they've got different kinds of moral concerns. You know, if you have a society with 35 million people here, then a society with more than a billion people there, density factors alone and family factors alone, not to speak about different government systems, will determine the extent to which you feel moral cha morally challenged. But the important point is, Fundamental to moral judgment is a sense of self, a sense of accepting of the self, a sense of accepting of other, and authenticity in one's decision-making. And the realization that when you have to behave in a, in a manner that is not consistent with what you feel because you feel pressured by the situation to do so, at least you're honest with yourself. And I think this is fundamental to the theme of emotionality. People are emotional. They come from cultures that are more or less accepting of it. They can come from families that are more or less accepting of it. But to the extent that we ourselves developed a strong sense of who we are, we accept the nature of the family or we understand the nature of the family and the society. And I believe this is the royal route to freedom. The more honest we are about the circumstances within which we are emotional at the family level, at the cultural level, the better able we are to make wise decisions. The wiser our decision, the less burdened we are about emotions. We want to feel happy here or sad there because the situation calls for it, but we don't want to put it away in the suitcase of our life because it dangles around our neck and drags us down because we haven't dealt with it. The whole point behind my conversation with you today and my conversation in my classroom is the legitimacy and the crucial reality of being honest with ourselves about our feelings feelings, feelings that are present in the moment, this is a relationship that's right for me or not right for me, or feelings that come from our childhood because of the burdens or blessings of our families. Sounds like a theme of what you've been saying is that one of the necessary or key, at least key routes toward self-improvement is understanding yourself, particularly your uh, how you respond emotionally to situations. Is that about right? You know, it's an interesting way to look at it. We can uh, think about it going from, at the, at the foundation, the most concrete level. So at the most concrete level, we're in situations, whether we're children, babies, children, or adults, things happen. 
and they can happen randomly, they can be chaotic, they can be unexpected, they can be real, and they're very concrete. We call this syncretic experience, all the pieces adding up together. Now, as we move up toward greater abstraction, the philosopher Leibniz, writing in the 1600s and early 1700s, talked about apperception, a perception that is aware of itself. As we move up this dimension of consciousness, we go from the unconscious where we're not aware, we're swimming in experience, to the conscious where we begin to admit that it's there, and the higher level of consciousness where we're able to take a look at our experiences in an honest way. This ability to take a look at our experiences, accept them, and reflect on what caused them, and the decisions, and our ownership of them is the royal route to freedom. Because we are thinking about ourselves, we're reflecting about ourselves, but at the same time, accepting the legitimacy of our experiences. These things happened. For better, for worse, for real, for not real, they happened. And it's like admitting that your parents were these kinds of people or those kinds of people who themselves grew up in those kinds of situations that shaped them. The better we understand the exigencies, the dynamics of our life, the more easily we can reflect on our life. And the act of reflecting on our life permits the emotions to come out, just like in Greek tragedy, Aristotle's position on tragedy is it's not just that an emotion comes out, but in the act of emotion coming out, we can go to a higher level of understanding, not just ourselves, but life in general, which in a certain sense is the value of theater. It permits us to identify with the people on the stage while at the same time going to another level of learning the general lessons from this particular play about life as lived by ourselves and others. You know, we're talking about emotions and, and understanding them. Um, I've found that, you know, even though we're talking about understanding emotions, a lot of that needs to be uh, critical, very critical thought. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, like, for my own self, sometimes I will have an emotional, uh, well, I'll have an emotion, and I might not know where the emotion came from. Or I might have an idea, but I'm wrong, <laughs> confabulating it. And it's only upon reflection, it's like, okay, you know, why was I angry in this situation, but not in this very similar situation? And, you know, I have to do some serious, you know, critical thought about trying to s sleuth out the actual um, thing that's going on that made the emotion happen. I, I think uh, the pivotal, or for me, a pivotal word that you used there was the word situation. The uh, social psychologist, Kurt Lewin, who came from uh, Germany to America, escaping the Nazis in the, in the 40s, like 30s, 40s, he brought to America the whole analysis of the situation from the person's viewpoint. And there's an interesting thing in social psychology called the actor-observer distinction. When the actor looks out at the world, to them they say the situation caused it. But when someone else looks, person other number two, looks at you, they might see, no, you have a trait inside of you. Some kind of quality inside of you caused it. And then we can therefore ask the more general question, to what extent am I responsible for what went down in the situation? And to what extent are other people responsible? And the crucial unifying concept here has to do with understanding the meaning of a situation. 
and the meaning of a situation is part and parcel with understanding the causes in a situation. What went down? Who were the actors? Who were hurt? What's the cost-benefit? Why are the causes? Is it something that happened? Is she screaming at me or he's screaming at me because of something I did just now? Or did they come back from a stressful day of work and the dishes weren't done or this was out of place and then they exploded? And by doing that kind of causal analysis, particularly for children, you begin to say, wait a second, I didn't do it because look what happens in situations of, of sexual abuse, for example. <laughs> Something happens to the child at the age of 10. I've had students interview people who were abused very, very young, and they relive it at the age of 21 as if it had happened yesterday because the event was so salient and traumatic. But you look at that child who was abused at the age of 10. They can be in a situation where, being just 10 years old, they can say, well, I did it. I permitted it to happen. See, I accepted that it happened. So they take the burden onto themselves, living with the guilt and all the psychological price that's paid. So at different ages, we are more, or when we're younger, less able to analyze, to unpack how things happened causally in situations. And clarity about the situation is pivotal. Who did what to whom? Did it happen just now? Is there a history of it? The more we know about the situation and the antecedents and history before that situation occurred, the better we can understand who was emotional because it's not just one person was emotional. Someone spoke aggressively. The other person was hurt. Someone lashed out. It's a dyadic circumstance or a multiple person circumstance. So emotion is not an isolated phenomenon. Emotions happen in situations. They have histories like icebergs. The anger awakens all the angers from before. The better able we are to understand the causal nexus and, and assign responsibility, the less we either blame others excessively or blame ourselves. We want to remove blame from the situation. We want to see it clearly. And if you're in a situation that is unsafe, and if you're in a situation that is unhealthy, you want to be able to leave it. You don't have to blame the person in the moment. You just exit for safety reasons. Or you might realize that you are being insensitive, that you are carrying an emotion, and then be empathic toward the other and help soothe them. So uh, what would you recommend to a listener who wanted to uh, learn more about this, either intellectually or in terms of more of a self-improvement kind of thing. Would you recommend any uh, books or any uh, materials? I don't really have an answer to that. The, my answer is something that I do with my students, and I just, I just suggest it to the listener as a kind of personal exercise. When, I'm when my students are interested in emotion, and every year I get people talk about interracial relationships, abusive relationships, all manner of sexual uh, coming out, etc., etc., in this day and age, I recommend the following. That people talk to each other and do their best to listen to other people talking about episodes or events in their life that were so important to them. And we can be surprised by this kind of, what can we say, active listening. But so, for example, you can talk to your parents about events that happened to them and say, I want you to tell me something that happened in your childhood, dad or mom or grandma or grandpa, that really, really stands out for you. And let them just share that moment. 
invariably or with great frequency, they pick out things that are completely surprising. And then the conversation that follows from that is one that can be healing. I've had many situations where I've taught students to do this for the last 25 years, where there has been healing in the family because no one had asked mom or dad or whatever relative that question. And by asking questions in a safe environment and a trusting environment, by being an active listener and letting the person tell you the details of their life, you awaken and develop a new relationship with them. And if you listen to several people who've had those kinds of experiences, you understand the phenomenon more profoundly. In other words, you can read books by Freud and you can read all manner of books by psychologists and self-help people. I'm saying something simple. Go out into the world, ask people about events that have stood out for them. Enjoy the pleasure of being surprised, even if sometimes they're talking about things that are sad. People lived in the concentration camps may never talk about it, and suddenly they reveal to the family or people who did things heroic never talk about it. So there are many sides of ourselves and there are many sides of others that are hidden. By making it legitimate to talk about these profound emotional moments in the lives of others, they have an opportunity for catharsis, the spillage of emotion that they've uh, pent up for many years. And we, as listeners, have a chance to be changed because we are elevated, morally elevated, in a situation of social sharing. And this can be a very healing event for the family and in our friendships. You know what I love about that is that it sounds like good advice, but it also sounds interesting and fun, not like hard work. <laughs> you know, you're getting to hear people's stories and what they want to talk about, right? Well, this is what's interesting. You know, I've done this for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. I've published about it. I have 25 kids in my fourth year class. I say to them, look, you guys are going to write a 100-page paper. And, of course, they look shocked. And I say, no, no, don't worry about it because I'm going to hold your hand. The paper's actually going to write you. Because you don't have to be a good boy or good girl, go out, find a literature and, and tell us who the important people are. You're the important people. And what's going to happen is you're going to discover that talking to people is not such an easy thing when it comes to having people reveal the truth about their life. Many kids will talk to their parents or, or whomever and, and discover the person just shuts down. They don't want to talk about it. And then they get a little better at actually, actually becoming a kind of interviewer. But I don't mean an interviewer who is detached. I mean an interviewer who is engaged. I mean an interviewer who creates a space between themselves and the person to whom they're talking, a zone of safety, a zone of sharing, a zone of authenticity and honesty. And this can be healing within the family because the parents and the kids have been keeping all kinds of secrets inside of themselves. And when they share in an active and supportive way. It changes each of them individually and their relationship together. It's not something you learn in books. It's the active school of hard knocks, listening to the hard knocks that people have gone through as a basis for giving love and support. That's great. Gerald Kupchik, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. 
and made possible in part by rainwater, covering the earth in fresh water for over 4 billion years. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at miningthebrainpodcast.com.